All right, well, welcome back to the Missio podcast, everyone. I'm Jared King, pastor of Missio Church, and this week we are looking at a really exceptional letter that can feel probably a bit confusing for a number of reasons, but it is honestly really just a quite amazing, um, just an amazing letter. And so we're looking at the letter called Hebrews. And so I just want to dive right in because there's a lot to discuss. Um, And honestly, we need to discuss some of the background pieces of this letter because they're really important. And they are important not for their sense of clarity, but actually for their lack of clarity. You know how we've looked at several letters of Paul over the past several weeks, and even the Gospels and other letters in Scripture were pretty clear on who wrote those letters and who they were addressed to. And so Paul will say things like in his letter to the Ephesian Christians, he'll say, you know, look, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. And most of the letters in the New Testament books are written this way. This is a a very clear author writing to a very clear recipient or audience. And so we've looked at several of Paul's letters written to Christians in different regions or cities or specific people. But this letter to the Hebrews is different. This letter doesn't have a stated author and really doesn't even mention who the letter is addressed to. You can make the argument that it is to the Hebrew people in general, but the Hebrew people where? Dealing with what issues? Remember, we've said that the that understanding historical contexts, including things like who wrote letters, why they wrote them, and to whom the issues that they were dealing with, and all those things are important because they then help us better understand the points, the intentions, and the purpose, and then how we are to read it and understand it for ourselves. But what do we do with a letter that doesn't have an author and doesn't seem to be writing to any specific people in a specific place? And so I think there's a number of things we actually can do with that. We can try to look throughout the letter to make some educated guesses as to who the author and recipients could be. And then we take some of what we know from issues or challenges in other contexts, in other letters, to try then to extrapolate the intention and purpose of this specific letter based on then what we know of the things that are going on around the regions and between the Jews and Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. And so some of the most educated guesses that people have come up with regarding who wrote this letter to the Hebrews are a couple of things. For probably... Uh, Well, since 400s, people thought that Paul wrote this letter. Um, And they thought that Paul wrote this letter from about 400 to about the Reformation period in the 1600s. And so it's during this time in the Reformation period that the theory that Paul wrote Hebrews really begins to fall away uh, among, honestly, basically everybody people started to really analyze the the writing styles of Paul's other letters and then this letter to the Hebrews, and they saw some pretty sharp discrepancies. Most notably, that Paul always mentioned himself and his recipient in his letters. And this is important. It's actually really important. You know, I've often wrestled with some of the conversations that I would hear or read about in seminary regarding things like authorship and writing styles and whatever else. 
Because sometimes we can get our heads so deep in the sand and find places where Paul would normally use a verb instead of a noun or whatever grammatical equivalent that is in Greek. And so scholars would then look at those differences across certain letters in the New Testament and think, see, he uses a comma in that run-on sentence here when normally he ignores punctuation altogether. Therefore, I can conclude that it wasn't him who wrote that letter, even if his name was attached to the letter. And I totally understand why scholars get this detailed in their work, because there is a desire to be certain and to be sure of what is happening and to really understand the contextual pieces that are at work. However, I've often wondered, aren't these just real people who are writing these letters? I completely understand that Paul would have been one of the most educated, smart writers and leaders of his day, but he is just still a real person, and he's actually writing in prison several different times. He's writing in house arrest. He's writing from cities all over Greece. He sometimes uses a scribe to write what what Paul has said, what he's saying, and sometimes he writes the letters himself. And my thought is, isn't it possible That in some of those letters that he wrote, he misplaced a comma, or he forgot punctuation altogether, or he was just kind of tired when he wrote and had some run-on sentences. In other words, there is a great deal that we can learn and understand from digging into the contextual elements surrounding a specific letter of Scripture. But sometimes we forget to allow the humanity of these people to come through in their letters. You know, I I definitely believe that the Bible is inspired by God himself, but I also believe that God allowed for the uniqueness of people's humanity to be evident in their writings. It's what makes the Bible so unique and powerful. That it can be this divinely inspired word from God while also taking on the very humanity of the people that wrote them. And to me, this is a testament to the purpose of God and the call of Jesus, that the work of God through Jesus could have been done apart from the activity of human beings, of of you and me. But that's not the way that God chose to make it happen. He chose to invite humanity into the activity of his work. With all all of our imperfections, all of our bad days, our misused grammar and words, God chose to use us to help bring into existence his scripture through which then the divine story and power of God is seen through the perfect story of Jesus. And honestly, this is amazing to me, but it's also in large part the story of this letter to the Hebrews, which we will dig into in a little bit. But sometimes we can get so far into the sand of finding grammatical inconsistencies that we miss the parts that are actually important. And so I don't want us to lose sight of what's actually important. But at the same time, yes, to me, it makes complete sense for people to think that it couldn't have been Paul that wrote it because he was so consistent. Paul was so consistent in his other letters to name himself and his intended audience. And in Hebrews, we don't have either of those. So then I think it's logical to think, yes, Paul didn't write this letter. So who did write this letter to the Hebrews? Most people are content with saying, I don't know. (laughs) It could be Apollos, who is mentioned in 1 Corinthians, or it could be some other leader in the church. We aren't really sure. 
And honestly, I'm content with that answer for now because as far as, as, as I understand the purpose and intent, it doesn't change that much if it's Paul or Apollos or, or some other leader in the church who wrote this letter. So now, honestly, though, the question of who they were writing to, it's a, it's a little bit different because it's obvious that whoever the author is, that person then is writing to Jewish Christians who are struggling with this desire to abandon Christianity, abandon Jesus, and go back to Judaism. I don't know if you remember a while back we started talking about this word Judaizers. Who were these Jewish Christians who were telling the Gentile Christians or Gentiles that in order to be acceptable to Jesus, you had to take on Jewish customs and religious obligations first? And then you could be acceptable to Jesus and be a part of the Christian community. And of course, Paul says, wait, no, they don't have to do that. Stop telling them that. Well, the issue of Judaizers was apparently something that was prevalent in a lot of different cities, Rome, Ephesus, and so many more. And Paul addresses it each time that it comes up. But whoever wrote Hebrews apparently sees this issue continuing and is addressing this as well as the issue of Jewish Christians beginning to long to go back to Judaism, essentially abandoning Jesus and the Christians. And this is important because the vast majority of Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews, is making the case for how Jesus is better than everything in Judaism. So, so hang with Jesus because he's, he's just so much better. He is superior to all of that. See, but the nature of the issues at hand has led many to believe that the location then, or the destination for this letter, was probably to the Hebrew people who were living in Rome. And so Jewish people in Rome at this time numbered between 40 and 50,000 people. 40 to 50,000 Jewish people living in Rome in the first century. And so it's a safe bet that the letter is addressed to the Jews in Rome, which again, I am pretty content to believe that to be where this letter was headed. That's fine with me. And so the question then leads to why was this letter written? Well, we mentioned some of the reasons just a minute ago. Judaizers were present in Rome, but also there were a number of Jews who were abandoning Christianity and going back to Judaism. But I think really the main reason to, for, for writing this letter, like many other letters in the New Testament, was to encourage people to stand firm in their faith. Remember, this is the reason that countless other letters are written in the New Testament, to encourage Christians who were going through a number of different struggles in different places to stand firm in their faith. And of course, each time a letter in the New Testament is mentioning that specific thing, they do so in a unique way that was meant for the people that we're writing to. And Hebrews is no different. The writer is seeing people struggle in their faith, and he is writing to encourage them to stand firm. And so I just want to pause for a second, because as I just said, this is a theme that we see in countless New Testament letters. People who are living real lives, really struggling with faith in Jesus. The very real challenge of faith is as old as following Jesus. And this message to stand firm in our faith 
is something that still rings true 2,000 years after Jesus lived on earth. And my guess is that it can be frustrating because we feel like faith should be easier than this, right? Following Jesus should be easier than this. But the reality is that we are all broken in some way. And the world is broken. And in our brokenness, it can be challenging to feel God, to feel connected to Jesus, to see people who claim to be followers of Jesus living in abusive and unchristlike way towards others. It can be challenging. The truth is that there are many moments where we will feel like this, where we'll ask the question, is this all there is? I thought Jesus changed things. Why does it not seem like things are changing? And see, when you feel those moments of uncertainty and confusion, the thing to do in that moment is not to beat yourself up or even to feel like you're alone in those thoughts or feelings. Because for thousands of years, people have asked the same exact questions that you're asking. And all along the way, the response of people like Paul and other writers was always, I hear your frustrations. I know your challenges, but stand firm. Stand firm because Jesus is at work in ways that we can sometimes see and understand and then in a lot of ways that we can't see or understand. So stand firm. And in this particular letter, as we mentioned earlier, there were Jewish Christians who were abandoning Christianity Christianity, and longing to go back to Judaism. And so what the author does is he begins to show how Jesus really is the superior way to get all the things that they claimed they wanted. They were seeing Judaism as this better avenue to find truth or to be close to God and countless other things. And the author of Hebrews is going to say, no, Jesus is not only the best way to achieve the things that you're looking for. He is the only way to achieve those things. And so I want to take a minute and just talk about one of the really important aspects of this letter, which is the way that the author is driving home this exact point, that Jesus is superior to basically all things, but specifically to the Jewish religious understanding of moral imperatives and divine presence. Remember, the Jews who were struggling and wanting to leave Christianity for Judaism believed that the prophets or the kings and the priests of Moses were were better and more historically positioned to help them achieve life with God and good living. And so the writer of Hebrews will spend much of the letter describing the way that Jesus is superior to all of those things. And so in the entire letter of the Hebrews, which is a bit of a longer New Testament letter at 13 chapters, the words better or superior occur 15 times. Now, honestly, that may not seem like a lot across 13 chapters, but better or superior are not typically words that you would use with such frequency unless you are really trying to drive home a specific point. And that point being all those things that you left in Judaism, all the the things that, that Rome offers, none of them match up to who Jesus is and what Jesus offers. 
And if you miss Jesus, if you miss him, then you will really miss the point of everything. Because the point of all creation, the point of God's work, the point of humanity is in fact life with Jesus. That's it, the the centrality of Jesus. I, okay, I want to just take a second and just mention how, how this sounds to me, because this honestly sounds a little bit strange. Do you, do you remember growing up and, and then you were in school and you were having these, these conversations with your you know, friends in school that started with things like, well, my dad is better than your dad, you know, because of whatever. And maybe that was just little boys that had those conversations and I don't even know if it was that. Maybe it was just me and my friends. And it very well could be true that that was the case. But we would get into these arguments that went back and forth between me saying, my dad is, you know, and then fill in the blank. And the other kids would respond, well, my dad is, and then they would fill in the blank with whatever it is. So it usually was something like, my dad is stronger than your dad. And then my friend would be like, yeah, well, my dad is taller. And they'd be like, my dad has hair on his head, which actually isn't true. So then they would say, yeah, well, my dad says he can bench press 250 pounds. And it would be this like back and forth trying to convince each other based on usually physical traits why our dads were better than other dads or their dads. And this is kind of the way that we had these little comparison conversations, you know, growing up in school. They were really sophisticated conversations. But this kind of comparison, this, this need to be associated with what is better doesn't end at childhood, does it? I mean, right? Obviously, you guys know I'm a huge sports fan, and and one of the dominant sports conversations revolves around who is the goat. And by goat, we are not talking about an animal in this context. It is literally the greatest of all time. So G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. And so each generation will typically choose a sports figure from their generation and say that person is the goat. The classic example of this is Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is largely considered to be the greatest basketball player of all time. And yet people today will say, no, LeBron is actually the greatest basketball player of all time. To which people will respond, yeah, but today's game is soft. And if Jordan played today, he would average 40 points a game. Which, incidentally, was exactly what Allen Iverson said this past week. But this generational talk comes out even better in football conversations because each generation sees their generation's version of football as the preeminent version of football, the most pure form of football. So whoever was the greatest at that time in football would dominate in today's version of football. But this desire to know who is the best, who is the greatest, is a part of our desire to feel like we are attached to the correct version and the most pure version of greatness. We want people to know that we watched Michael Jordan take that final shot against Byron Russell to win his sixth NBA championship. We want people to know that I watched Tom Brady's first Super Bowl win, so that's better than his seventh Super Bowl win. We want people to know that I went to Jerry Rice's final NFL game because we love to be attached in some way to the greatest of all time, or at least what we perceive to be the greatest. And see, this is, this is what hap- is happening in Hebrews, where the Jewish Christians 
who are then beginning to go back to Judaism, are trying to make the case that their version of religion, that, that, that Judaism is the goat, the greatest of all time. It's better than Christianity's version of religion. And so the author is going to spend the first 10 chapters really listing off all of the ways that Jesus is actually better. <laughs> the, way, the ways that Jesus is the goat. And so he says, you guys remember Moses. You all are so committed to claiming Moses as your ancestor to be attached to the greatness of Moses. You guys know the story of Moses, right? Leading the people out of Egypt. And yet the Hebrew author says, yeah, Jesus is better than Moses. <laughs> he says, you remember the order of the priests through the lineage of Aaron? Yeah, Jesus is a better priest than that because he's from the order of Melchizedek, who was also a king. But Jesus is actually even better than Melchizedek. He says the sanctuary that Jesus sets up to worship in is better than your sanctuary to worship in. He says not only are those historical figures that Jesus is superior to, but he's, Jesus is actually superior to even the angels. And see, the Jewish religion would have known well the significance and relevance and divine nature of the angels. They were a part of God's heavenly beings engaging periodically with humanity at God's call. And we have several moments throughout scripture that show the majestic nature of angels and their work. And the Hebrew author says, not even these heavenly beings, the angels themselves are equal to the majestic nature of Jesus. And so, see, he, he, he is sensing that there is this conversation that is beginning to take place, probably again in the city of Rome, where the Jewish people are saying, I don't think Jesus is enough. What if we were to go back to Judaism? Because we can list off some of the greatest people in the history of Jewish faith. Moses, Abraham, Gideon, all these people, we can list them. There was these prophets, there are these priests. The angels themselves were a part of the Jewish faith. And they're saying, let's just go back to that because it seems to be better. It is more definable. We can follow that better. This is a better place to be and a better religion to follow. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, no, guys, guys, no. Jesus is better than all of those things. All of those people. Jesus is superior to all of them. He is the ultimate. And it's interesting because in chapter 1, when the author is talking about how Jesus is superior to angels, he lists multiple Old Testament passages as a way to help the Jews reading this understand their own scriptures. And so in chapter 1, verse 5, he quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel 7, 14, and 1 Chronicles 17, 13. And he goes on to quote several more Old Testament passages that show the angels as subservient to Jesus. As if he's trying to say, you, you're trying to say that the angels are best. But even your own scriptures are trying to show you the subs their subservient position to Jesus himself. And so he has all these ways, the first 10, chap chap uh, 10 chapters, to say, look, see, Jesus is superior to all these things that you feel like are great. 
And, and I think it's really important to note that the author of Hebrews is not saying that those things, that those people, that Moses and, and Aaron and the priests and the prophets and all the angels are, not, he's not saying they're unimportant. Nowhere in this letter will he make the claim that the things that Jesus is superior to are therefore then unimportant. He isn't saying that Moses is bad or unimportant, that the angels are not relevant, that the priests and prophets don't matter. It's the same when people say Jordan is the best of all time. It doesn't imply that LeBron sucks at basketball. It simply means that they think that Jordan is better. See, he says the, the value in what the Jews are holding up is great and important. He says, yeah, they are. Those are valuable. Those are incredibly beautiful and important things that are a part of our story, a part of God's story. But Jesus is the reason all of those things exist and have their purpose. So he has all these things that Jesus is superior to, but the way that he starts the conversation is honestly the game changer. Have you ever been debating someone about a topic and you're making all these really great points and honestly, they're probably making some pretty good points as well, but you know that you have this secret ace up your sleeves that you're holding on to, waiting for the perfect moment to bring it out and slam it down, drop the mic and walk away and be like, see, that ends the conversation. We often, I feel like, like to hold on to our game-stopping arguments to the last minute for dramatic effect. <laughs> oh. But I love this because the author of Hebrews doesn't wait till the end to pull out the ace in his sleeve. He starts with the ace. <laughs> in the first four verses of the letter, he says, in, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He basically is affirming all these things that they are saying are good and great. But he says in verse 2, But in these last days, he has spoken, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, uh, of the majesty in heaven. And I, I love this because he wastes no time setting up the stage and basically slamming down his, his trump card. He says, you, you all have been trying to convince yourselves and others around you that Jesus is not the best way. He's not enough or even true. That the prophets, priests, angels, and Moses are all better and you don't need Jesus. Well, let me tell you this. It's true that in the past God spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through Jesus. And Jesus is the heir of all things and through whom all things were created. Not only that, but Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and he sustains everything. It's like the author of Hebrews just lays down this, this he basically does that mic drop moment and then he picks the mic back up and he's like, okay, so let me continue. Jesus is also better than Moses. Jesus is also better than the angels. Jesus is also better than the prophets and the priests and, and all these different things. And it wasn't that, that he is trying to one-up. He's not one-upping the Jews in this moment. This is not a, yeah, well, my dad is bigger. 
kind of argument. Because the author of Hebrews validates the prophets. He validates the priests and and Moses and the angels. And then he says, but all those things were created and given purpose through and because of Jesus. And they are and always have been sustained by Jesus. Jesus didn't come to earth to point back to the prophets or priests, the angels or Moses, but each of them did their work and existed to point to Jesus. And see, that's the main difference. They point to Jesus. Jesus doesn't point back to them. And this is huge. This is huge because he's not invalidating. He's not saying that those things are unimportant. Actually, he's saying those things were critical because they were pointing to the very purpose of the fabric of the universe, who is Jesus. You know, this is honestly why we say things at Missio like, Scripture, the Bible, is not the point of our faith. It is, the Bible is not the point of our faith, but it points to the person who is the point of our faith. At Missio, we do not worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. That does not mean the Bible is unimportant. The Bible is important because it helps us understand Jesus and know how to engage in his work and mission. But the point is not the Bible. The point has always been Jesus. And see, the Jewish Christians were falling back into this mode where they wanted to be associated with the prophets and the priests and the angels and Moses, the old figures of faith throughout their history, which is not a bad thing. But those people were never the point of faith in God or being God's people. They did, however, point to the person who is the point of faith in God and being God's people, which is Jesus. They're saying, look, all of these things point to Jesus, not vice versa. They point to Jesus. The author of Hebrews then has this interesting and kind of short conversation at the beginning of chapter 6 where he has just talked about the superiority of Jesus to prophets and angels and priests and Moses And then he says, but listen, you guys, you need to start growing in your understanding of Jesus and your role in his work. He says, you have have to stop rehashing the foundations of faith in Jesus. And then he lists in chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, some of those foundations. He says, the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He says, you are content to keep rehashing these foundational theological points, but not ever mature in them or actually mature in anything else in Jesus. And and at first, I think this can probably feel a little bit confusing. Because it probably seems like he is telling them to move on from these foundational teachings That in a sense, they are unimportant. But this is not what he's saying. He isn't saying that these foundations are not important. Therefore, you should be able to move beyond them and into more important aspects of faith. He's saying that these 
These are things that you should have understood by now and that they would naturally then propel you deeper into other areas of faith and life with Jesus, but you haven't grown or matured and you are stuck in the basics. And see, this is really important because it's as, it's as if this writer of the Hebrew letter is saying that part of the reason that you're going, that you're longing to go back to Judaism is because you haven't matured in your understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be actively engaged in life with Jesus. You're stuck in these basic kind of tenets of faith, which are good tenets of faith that you should know and be a part of, but they don't tell the whole story. And you need to keep building on those things. You need to keep maturing in your faith. There's a book that we have used, uh, that Laura and I have used to develop our understanding of how to do homeschool for our kids. So most of you guys know our kids are in a public homeschool resource program uh, in Edmonds with the state of Washington, which basically means that they take a limited number of classes from publicly certified teachers at a school in Edmonds, and then we fill in the rest of their education from home. And so before we you know, felt confident to do that, we were trying to figure out what it means, read some books. Um, and it's been a really great option for us to do this little homeschool thing because it's not fully homeschooling where we're having to do everything, but it also allows the freedom and flexibility that homeschool provides. And so when we were trying to understand how we should educate our kids, we read this book called a, the, or the Well-Trained Mind, which lays out the classical education methodology of school. And in that book, they talk about the three main stages of children's educational development. And so they begin in what is called the grammar stage, which is basic memorization and simply learning facts. And so you can think about kids in kindergarten or first and second grade, and they're learning colors and sounds and animals or hot and cold, you know, very tangible, factual things. The sky is blue. And there's really no reason to go beyond this at a young age because the level of mental capacity is limited and, and, and it grows, you know, as they get older. And so that first stage is the, the grammar stage, basic memorization and learning facts. Well, the next stage of educational development is called the logic stage, which then takes those facts that were learned and begins to process cause and effect, assessing why something is the way it is. So, you know, you, you say the sky is blue. That's the fact. Well, why? Because it, you know, and then you take the information on why and then draw a logical conclusion from those facts for why the sky is blue. You know, if the stove is hot, that's a fact. The stove is hot. So if I touch the stove, my hand will burn. Why will my hand burn? Because my hand is not meant to touch something that is hot like that. And if I do burn my hand, it will form something that will cause a lot of pain on my hand and will need to be damaged 
but it'll eventually heal. And so that second stage of educational development is a logic stage, taking those facts that were learned and beginning to process cause and effect, assessing why something is the way it is. And the final stage of educational development is called the rhetoric stage. And this is where you begin to assimilate that reasoning and that logic into your worldview or, or not into your worldview and articulate your thoughts in a persuasive way about that thing. And so if you have to write a paper on the effects of racism in our country, this means that you have to start by looking at the facts of a history of racism and racial biases, and you have to make some assumptions and logical conclusions about that history and, and the present condition in our country on racism. And then you have to write a paper explaining the long-term effects of racism that racism has had in the formation of our country and why it's so hard for people to acknowledge that racism exists at times and, and what we can do about it to begin creating justice in a just world. And so that's kind of the, the logic stage where you begin to assimilate that reasoning and, or sorry, that's the rhetoric stage where you begin to uh, assimilate the reasoning and logic into your worldview or not into your worldview and to articulate your thoughts in a persuasive way. And so grammar, logic, rhetoric, this is what we want for our kids. We want them to be able to see the reality of things around them, to form logical conclusions, and then to allow those conclusions to be brought into their worldview or not, and for them to be able to articulate that to others. And this is not just the process for things like math or science or engineering, but it's also the way that our spiritual lives work. You know, with our kids, we've taught them that Jesus is love. That, that, that's the grammar stage, that the fact that, that we want them to know that Jesus' love seeks goodness and justice, righteousness and generosity, grace and things like that. And so those are the grammar stage teachings that we are trying to instill in our kids. We then want them to draw some, some conclusions, logical conclusions based on that. So we want them to know that if Jesus is loving and we are being made to look and act and speak more like Jesus, then I should be loving and generous and gracious and kind. A person who seeks goodness and justice and righteousness. And so those are logical conclusions that we want them to draw. But we don't want it to end there. We want them to get to the place where they are able to articulate their belief that that belief in Jesus becomes their worldview. And so they can, they can articulate that belief in Jesus as Lord and friend and Savior and King of their life and be able to, to know how to then create opportunities for the people around them to experience the goodness of Jesus in them, to actively engage in the work of Jesus in the world and what that looks like. See, that's what we want for our kids in their faith development, to go from grammar to logic to, to rhetoric. And see, I think the point that the author of Hebrews is making here is that the people were stuck in the grammar stage of their faith. And often when we get stuck in the grammar stage of our faith, we keep trying to find new ways to say the same things that we've always said. I had a friend, a, a friend of mine once tell me that he was in a preaching class in seminary and the teacher had this assignment where everyone would preach 
on the story of Jesus walking on water. That was the assignment. So everyone was going to have an opportunity to preach a little sermon on the story of Jesus walking on water. My friend said that he sat and listened to countless sermons on the text from his classmates. Not a lot of them were great. Some of them were okay. But he said one guy got up there and he decided to preach this passage of Jesus walking on water from the perspective of a fish. So the guy created this long dialogue where the fish is telling the story of Jesus walking on water from from his perspective, the fish's perspective. And this guy finishes this sermon and he says the room (laughs) cheered and told him how unique that sermon was and it was amazing. And my friend said he just sat there stunned that the entire class believed that the most fresh and relevant way of understanding this passage was to understand it from the perspective of a fish. (laughs) And he said, we have failed to see the depth of stories like this when we are content to just retell the story in unique ways that still fail to reach into any part of our being other than this weird imaginative part that takes us nowhere. In other words, what he was saying is that the part of that story, it's not to see... Jesus walking on water from the perspective of a fish, but to see it from the perspective of the human soul, which then directly connects to my being and the things that I am wrestling deeply with. See, the the point of Jesus walking on water is to show how hard it is at times to keep our eyes on Jesus. That in every moment of life, there are countless things that are vying for your attention that are causing those moments of heartache and uncertainty to emerge in ways that cause us to say things like, I just don't know anymore. If Jesus is who he says he is, then why am I still filling this and fill in the blank? Why are these things still happening in the world? See, the disciples are out in the boat, and it's early in the morning. They can't see very well, and Jesus does something crazy. He starts walking on the water to the boat, and the disciples see him, and they start freaking out. They're freaking out because they know that nobody can walk on water. And Jesus says, guys, don't be afraid. It's me. And in that moment of fear, in that moment of going, nobody can do this, Peter sees Jesus and he wants to go to Jesus and he begins that journey to him. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he keeps his eyes on Jesus and begins walking on the water himself. But as he's walking on water, he begins to feel the wind around him and he sees the water churning over and it causes doubt and fear and uncertainty to rise within him and he begins to sink. And in that moment, he does the only thing that he can do. He cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. I mean, isn't this the exact story we hear when we retell our own story of faith? I can't tell you the amount of times that I have felt the pain of uncertainty in my faith. I can't tell you how often I have written prayers that said, Why, God, have you abandoned me in the middle of my storm? And then in those moments of grief and heartache, 
are these brief glimpses of something divine pushing through the cloud that causes us not just to keep moving forward, but to keep taking these further leaps of faith that seem to be crazy. To climb out of the boat and to do the impossible because we believe that Jesus is there with us in the moment. And then as soon as we climb out of the boat, we feel the wind again pushing us around and we see the struggle of life churning the waters beneath us and the sinking begins. How many of us have felt that? lived that, breathed it, and felt the unbelievable pain of sinking and feeling like, but Jesus, you said I could follow you into the waters, and now I'm sinking. And, and, and the question is, then what happens in those moments of desperation? Either we sink all the way in, or we do the one thing that we know that we can do, but are unsure will actually work. We cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me. A, a, a fish story? This story is not about seeing Jesus walking from the perspective of a fish crying out loud. This is the story of every journey of faith, including mine, including yours, and the place of desperation that we find ourselves in and will find ourselves in if we haven't. And, and then the one thing that we know we can do when we find ourselves there. Cry out to Jesus. See, that preaching class had been fed the grammar, the facts of the story. But their inability to move from grammar to logic and from logic to rhetoric caused them to simply retell the story from the perspective of a fish rather than see it for its depth and the way that it pierces into every heart that hears it. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying at this moment. He's saying the foundational beliefs are exactly that. They're foundational. But you haven't moved past the grammar stage of your faith. You haven't matured at all, which is probably why you're looking for a way to go back to Judaism, because at least there you are more, you've more fully understood the logic stage of religion. And see, the foundations of faith are not unimportant. In fact, they are critical for our ability to keep moving forward in faith. As we are homeschooling our kids, it isn't as if we're saying at the beginning of each new year, okay, everything you guys learned last year, I want you to forget all of it because it's a new year and we're learning new things. No, of course not. We review all of the things that we learned in previous years and then we keep building off of that foundation. You know, math is a series of bricks stacked on top of one another to allow you to reach new places of understanding more complicated math equations. Faith moves and matures as you take the foundational pieces of faith and keep learning more and more about who Jesus is and what he is calling you to be a part of in the place you are in and with the people who are around you. And see, this writer of this Hebrew letters is saying, you guys are stuck in this grammar stage of faith. 
And so he concludes the letter by saying, so then maturity looks like participating and engaging in the things of Jesus. Since Jesus is superior to all these things that you once had in Judaism or outside of Judaism even, then here is what you do to keep maturing in faith. He says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, hardship and challenge will come to everyone in faith. So endure the hardship by keeping our eyes on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And as we do that, we will continue to be shaped and changed into his image, which will produce righteousness and peace in us and around us. So I think the the writer of Hebrews is not just concerned that people are leaving faith in Jesus and returning to Judaism because they think it's better or perhaps easier. I think he is concerned because it seems like the people are leaving Jesus and going back to Judaism simply because they haven't allowed their faith to mature. We sometimes have unhealthy views of, of maturity, though, don't we? We can sometimes think maturity is too rigid or stodgy. I will often say that I am immature as if it is a badge of honor that I wear. And I say it kind of in a joking way, but I think it's because there's a part of me that fears maturity and thinks it means that I can't be goofy or have fun. But maturity is not the lack of goofiness or having fun or being dumb or weird. That's not what maturity is. Maturity is moving from grammar to logic and from logic to rhetoric to allow Jesus to become the central part of our worldview and be able to articulate why we love him like we do. But I also think maturity is understanding the reality of the journey of faith that we're on. That on a journey, we don't always feel good about the journey or like we are always getting things right. In fact, maturity is recognizing that we probably have a lot of blind spots in the way that we see the world and certainly in the ways that we see God. But then having the willingness to find ways to see God and Jesus more clearly. Maturity is admitting that we don't have all the right answers but that we want to keep moving forward and finding those and seeking more of God. And see, I think one of the bravest marks of maturity in faith is seen in what Peter did as he was sinking into the water as the tossing and turning of doubts rose in him in that moment walking to Jesus, where he did the one thing that he knew he could do. He cried out, Lord, save me. See, maturity isn't always having the right answers or even believing that we're always right about things. It's actually the opposite. It's admitting that there is more to walking with Jesus than we can fully understand. And in that moment we say, so the one thing I know I can do is to fix my eyes on Jesus and just keep moving forward. See, that is maturity of faith. Okay, well, I know this has been a longer episode. Hebrews is a longer letter, but it's just so, so good. So what can we do with this letter? I really honestly just want to have this letter encourage you. To let you know that faith is not easy. And there are moments when it's just downright challenging. I don't always know what Jesus is doing in me or in you or in our city, but 
Part of the journey of faith is trusting in Jesus in spite of not having all the answers for how things turn out. You know, we didn't talk at all, honestly, about the very famous chapter of Hebrews, which is chapter 11, which is, which is kind of called by a lot of people the Hall of Faith or the Heroes of Faith. But in that chapter, chapter 11, is this beautiful section that speaks directly to my heart. And I want to share this verse with you. It's from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. It says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And so their God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. And that last little sentence is what I really want you to hear. Their God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, there's a lot in that in those few verses. You know, he has just listed off in chapter 11, person after person after person who lived a life of faith. And some of those people led great lives of faith, like Abraham, while others led very quiet lives of faith, daily lives of faith, like Enoch. <laughs> this is what I love about this chapter on heroes of faith. And so there's, there's people like Noah and Abraham, Gideon and Rahab, and more that are mentioned like that, people who, you know, we would read about and think those people had incredible faith that led to do such, led them to do such great things. But in this chapter, the author also lists this guy named Enoch. And there are only two places in all of the Bible where Enoch is mentioned. One is in this chapter, chapter 11, and then the other is in Genesis chapter 5, which is this genealogy from t- taking you from Adam to Noah. And so in Genesis chapter 5, verses 22, it says, And he became the father, he being Enoch, came the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. I mean, that's it. That is all that is said about Enoch. He lived 365 years and he walked with God. I would honestly love for my life to be summed up in such a way. Maybe not the 365 years part, but that my life can be summed up by Jared. He walked with God. That alone was enough to get him into the chapter portraying these heroes of faith. But back to the passage that we just read. (laughs) The author says all of these people lived by faith and died holding to their faith. He says they didn't see the things promised to them. Abraham was promised all sorts of things. Others were promised these different things. But specifically, he is saying faith isn't about receiving a benefit. We don't deposit faith into a gumball machine called God and then out pops some promised reward. Faith is walking with God. Simple as that. It's Enoch's life. And the author says they didn't see the promised things, but they still kept their faith and kept moving toward God. And because of that, God was not ashamed to be called their God. And this this phrase, to not be ashamed, is one of those phrases that's hard to understand in English in 21st century context. 
it doesn't do a great job of articulating what is being said. So a while back, Laura and I were doing, we're going through this marriage book together, like we try to do on a semi-regular basis. And this book was having us choose some of our trigger words, these words that are kind of lies about ourselves that trigger us to think things about ourselves, to believe the lies about ourselves. And there was this list of words that you had to choose from, and one word in particular stuck out to me, and it was the word inadequate. I often feel inadequate at the things that I do or who I am. And it's not because of anything anyone has said to me or done to me, but because it's just a part of who I am. For whatever reason, it's something that I struggle with, this feeling of being inadequate. And so part of the exercise that we were doing was to obviously name the triggers that we feel about ourselves, that these are the lies about ourselves. And then so we would name the the lie and then we would find the word that speaks the truth of ourselves. So there's the opposite of uh, that we, we, we name the lie and then we try and find the, the truth, right? So if a person feels like they are unworthy, that's the lie. And the truth is that they are worthy. And so we're going through this list. And, and as I, and I said, you know, the lie that I sometimes feel about myself is that I am inadequate. <laughs> and so the truth about myself is that I am adequate. <laughs> and immediately after I said, I am adequate, this sadness just came over me because even in telling myself the truth of myself, it felt insulting. (laughs) I'm not great. I'm just adequate. But this is sometimes a problem with just saying the opposite of some words or just removing parts of the word because honestly, the opposite of inadequate isn't just saying simply adequate. It's more like competent or gifted, right? And so there there is a struggle at times to articulate the the antonym, the opposite of a certain word, right? To, to simply say the opposite of shame is unashamed doesn't really capture the full weight of God's thought about people of faith in this context. The real opposite of shame is not unashamed, it's honored or proud. And see, in a be- and especially in honor-shame cultures, the meaning of this word would have jumped off the pages. God isn't saying, well, I'm not ashamed to be their God. No, he is saying, when people are living lives of faith, I am proud and honored to be their God. You know, as a parent, I really understand this. As a parent, I'm always proud and honored to be my kid's father, but there are certain moments where that feeling of honor and pride swells with the force of a thousand sons within me. When Sydney was baptized by my father-in-law, when Jade leaned into Lara after giving birth to Gabriel and said, thank you for working so hard to bring him into the world. When Gabriel says, can you chop can you teach me to chop some wood or teach me to build something? And then he goes and he does it and he comes back and he shows me and he has that look on his face that says, do you see what I did, daddy? Or when Cyrus wants to be silly and he does these little things where he, he acts like he doesn't want to come up and hug me in the morning or cuddle with me, but only wants to hug mommy and cuddle mommy. And then 10 minutes later, he comes up and curls up on my lap and puts his head on my chest In those moments, I feel a sense of honor 
and pride to be their father that is different. And this is what God is feeling towards his people at this moment. He isn't just unashamed to be their God. He sees his people and the struggle and the tension of life that they face with all of those moments of uncertainty and confusion. And he sees the struggle of faith in them to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. And his heart swells for his people. And he says, I am proud. I am so honored to be your God, not just the God of the universe, but you, right where you are. I am proud of you. See, that's what the story of Hebrews is. He's saying, guys, Jesus is superior. He is so great. He is the purpose. The, the prophets, the priests, the, the angels, scripture, the Bible, everything was pointing to the goodness and the love and the beauty and the superiority of Jesus. Not so that you can simply just live in the grammar stage of faith in Jesus and get right get the facts of Jesus right, but to begin to allow yourself to mature to a place where the love of Jesus goes into the very fabric of your journey of life and the ups and downs and penetrates deep into the sorrows and the pains and those moments where you just don't know what to do and you feel like you're sinking into the water and yet you still have your eyes fixed on Jesus and you're going, I got to move towards him and God looks at you in those moments with this heart swelled like the swell of a thousand suns and he says I'm so proud of you I'm so proud of you that's what this Hebrew letter is about all right well whew, we did it that's Hebrews a little bit longer today thanks for listening everybody uh, next week, we're going to look at, at the book of James and First Peter, which is right. We're going to have two podcasts next week. Uh, so be looking forward to that. I love you all, and I will see you Sunday at Paramount Park for our time of worship at 11. All right, bye. All right, guys. Bye.